Hi, this is Chuck Morse, Left Right Radio. Thanks for joining me this afternoon. My guest is Crispin Sartwell. Sartwell, he is a, an American philosopher, a self-professed anarchist, a journalist, and he's a faculty member at, of philosophy at the uh, philosophy department, excuse me, I'll be all right, at uh, Dickinson College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Thanks for joining me, Crispin. Good to be here. Now, what caught my attention was your thesis on the use of left and right as terms, cap terms, to describe political orientations and how we've become somewhat, um, I guess you might say, mobilized in both of those terms. They've become overall catchphrases for generalized philosophies that are often undefined. Um, I think before we delve into a, a talk about whether or not these terms should be discarded, which seems to be what you're saying, um, I think we need to define those terms as they're presently constituted. So let's let's do it. <laughs> you want to have a crack at it or shall I? Where do you start? All right. Well, um, I mean, part of my idea is that they cannot be coherently defined, really. Um, you know, and if it, people sort of want to make them eternal categories, like they, they'll look retrospectively at historical developments in medieval Europe or something, and they'll sort of think of people as leftists and rightists. And it just doesn't work at all. Uh, yeah, I mean, it originates in the French Revolution. Um, and, you know, I, there are various ways to try to do this. Um, I think really the distinction probably came into currency under the aegis of what was thought of as the left. And so any, you know, anyone that was not on their side was consigned to the right. Right, but, right. And, that, and by the way, that could include Trotsky. When, <laughs> right? I mean, when, when he fell out of favor with Stalin, he was then described as a right wing and fascist. I mean, Hitler was originally thought of as on the left until he until Operation Barbarossa, in which case Stalin then categorized him as right wing. So these are relative terms. And um, yes, and I'm not sure they're coherent. Uh, when you point out the, the historic background in that it was the French Revolution of 1789, when you had uh, Louis XVI reconvene the, the General Assembly, the, uh, the state's general, and you had on the you had left and right side of the assembly, the left side moved the country toward the reign of terror and anarchy, and the right side was more oriented toward a rest, restoration of the of a limited monarch and a constitutional monarch, which was what Louis the Sixteen became after yes. they reigned. Although you know, it probably referred originally more widely to pro and anti royalist factions, not necessarily the most radical. Uh, you know, on the the Robespierre's that were going to go into the terror necessarily. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I mean, and I think that historically you can't go much farther back with it than that. I, I think that I disagree in that I think that these terms, if we don't have terms left and right, then we have to invent terms to mean the same thing, because they do describe certain political orientations that seem to fall either, I suppose, euphemistically to the left or to the right. I mean, the word communist had been around long before the French Revolution. Now, in fact, um, if you read the diary of William Bradford, who founded Plymouth Bay Colony here in Massachusetts, where I am, he, he used the word communism to describe the original setup of the Plymouth Colony. Shared ownership. That's right. And uh, every, everyone was given a share, and, and it was a disaster. People were starving to death. People couldn't get along, so he got rid of it, and he moved toward a free market, and then you had Thanksgiving. But, but the point is that these are ideas that have been around Forever. I mean, if you look, I at, well, I'll give you, I'll give you one more premise okay. before, and that is um, Whitaker Chambers' autobiography, Witness. He refers to communism as the world's second oldest religion. Now, that's euphemistic when he, you know, he draws that from the Old Testament, but he says that communism was the promise made by the serpent in the Garden of Eden, that to Eve and Adam that you could be as God, you can know good and evil, you could know the, partake of the fruit of knowledge, you know, and, and thus. That doesn't, sound much like, that doesn't sound much like Marxism to me. 
right? I mean, like, I'll tell you where I think it does, and and that is that Marxism, and I think Chambers lays this out in, in his book. It, it's an attempt to remove the idea that there is a an immutable source of of rights, that there's an immutable source of truth, even of reality that's outside of human manipulation, whether you call it God or whether you call it nature or nature's God, as Jefferson said, and to replace that with power by man to transform life on earth. And uh, that's, you know, a grab toward an all-knowing reality for man when, when the way we're set up is we can't know everything. Okay. Well, one thing I would say is, I mean, you can make them equivalent to just secular and religious uh, approaches to government or something like that. But then you do have, you know, people who could be conceived to be right wingers who are pretty secularized, like Hobbes, for instance. I mean, uh, Marx does give you the material world. Uh, you know, he, he, he's not a social constructionist in that sense. He, uh, you know, he believes that there's a objective external reality. Um, that you can get right or wrong. I mean, I, I think these are far too generalized. And so, I mean, I, okay, so I just don't think that you could look at these previous systems, like say the order of, the way we ordered political systems in the early 19th century in the US, I don't think they're well conceived as left or right. So for you example- You mentioned this in your your, col- your column, and you point out like the, the, uh, the debate between Hamilton and Jefferson, which dominate, which were the two predominant philosophies at the, fin- the time of the founding of the Republic. I don't think they fit very well in this. No, they don't. They don't. But at the same time, if you, tr- you know, it's worth looking at in that the classic paradigm today, and I think since uh, the French Revolution, that I suppose you could say it's a consensus paradigm, but that's debatable, is that the more government, the more yeah. secular control yeah. over human life, the further left, the less government, the more okay. individual identity under a creator or whatever is, is a move toward the right. So in okay. that sense, you could take a look at Hamilton and Jefferson and say that Hamilton might have been a little to the left of center, Jefferson a bit to the right of center, but yet at the same time, Jefferson advocated slavery, which made him very left. Um, you know, the idea that man could own other people as if they are pieces of property. You know, this is a radical left idea. Uh, I, I think, wait, I, I think you're just slandering the left now, like with the history of slavery. Of course, they would do the same to the right, right? Like this is the, uh, you know, this is the history of right wing. We go all the way back to, you know, Greek slavery or something like that. These are all anachronisms, man. Like, I don't think that Hamilton is – usually Hamilton would be conceived as being to the right of Jefferson, right? Or at least that was the way we thought about it maybe in the 70s or 60s. Right. Um, you know, Jefferson is a small government, um, you know, but he's also a religious skeptic, I have to say. Uh, you know, I mean, this is a complicated terrain. It is complicated. You, know, you could take a look at both left and right elements in both of them. I mean, that's true. Yes, and I think, for example, if you look at – uh, a lot of abolitionists, I study sort of radical abolitionist thought in early 19th century America. It was, a lot of it was, first of all, extremely Christian. You know, like it was coming straight from the Bible, the attack on slavery, the Sermon right. on the Mount in particular. Uh, and, you know, and even like the the political orientation of someone like Thoreau, emerges from this uh, atmosphere of kind of Protestant Quakerism. movement, For sure. Side of Massachusetts. Right. Uh, so that doesn't line up very well. I mean, it doesn't line up very well in the left, right spectrum. And I, I wouldn't internalize these things because I don't think they make sense at all. So, for example, I think like you could, okay, small government versus large government, that's a sensible way to organize a political spectrum. It doesn't mm-hmm. match up very well to the left-right spectrum. Although I think leftism is by and large statism. Okay. I do think that's basically true. But then, you know, again, if you thought of fascism as being right-wing, and I see why one might not, 
but it's paradigmatically right wing. It's not small state. If you look at George Bush and Dick Cheney, those are not small state people. Donald Trump is not a small state person. And yet these people are on the right side of the political spectrum by that, by, I don't know, by common sense or, or just by their political party. So what I'm saying partly is that any particular way to make this make sense won't line up actually with the, the real positions on the ground very well. Well, I mean, look, th these are matters of degrees. I mean, I think you could say that um, Bush and Cheney and, um, and Trump, they, they are the left in that they, they believe in the big government entity, but yet they're not as far to the left as maybe Barack Obama or Bill Clinton, who are more advocates of the nanny state. But I want to get into like the, the talk that I would suggest that the United States in general, even in the context of degrees of left and right, which I think are, you know, all of our leaders have had different levels of that and shades of it, that we are. I don't think. Right, excuse me. I don't think the categories make sense. Like as you look at. Well, well, let me, let me make my, my, my point here. Yeah. That the United States and America, and even to a certain extent, the British Commonwealth, but I, I think the United States is the ultimate manifestation of it. It is to the right. It is a right wing nation. I mean, in a, in a, in a small R sense, we're not like radical, uh, you know, anarchists. We're not way out on the right, but we are to the right of center in that we're a nation of decentralized government, small business owners landowners we're basically a religious people we believe in we don't trust government we don't worship government like the left does as a, as a redemptive force we either have a belief in a creator or we believe in something outside of government as a source of rights and that and what do you mean by i mean no. in general the american i don't mean every individual i mean if you take a look at the ethos of, of the united states the founding principles well, we may, have, we may have believed that in 1830, you know, or 1870. And that's, I, I regard those as, as basic values of, you know, basic American foundational values. That's right. not where we're at now, I think. And that's not where we've been for a long time. Oh, I agree. Yeah. But, but I think most Americans are still there. But I think that our elites, and I include it's in about those. 50 50 split, I think. No, not at all. I think it's more of a maybe a 30-70 split or a 20-80 split. But more, you know, I think that starting in the early part of the 20th century are kind of, I don't want to use the word ruling elites, but I would say, and you reference this in your article very well, by the way, that there's kind of this combination of, of super rich people and people in government and, and these extra governmental agencies that move the country to the left on the top levels. And when I say to the left, I'm including in that people like the Bushes and, and, and whatnot. And it did not reflect the average American. I don't think it still does reflect the average American who is a, who is still remains basically the small business owner, the independent individual lifting themselves up by their bootstraps, basically religious you know, not trusting government power. I mean, I sort of wish that our values were still more like that, but I don't know that they are. Okay. I think uh, that's a fair criticism. I worry yeah. that they're not. Yeah. I mean, uh, now, I think that in some ways, the way you're using left seems ex eccentric or not, um, not idiomatic, not the way most people would understand it. So, for example, if you're talking about, like, wedding huge monopoly capital to state power. Like if you're Rockefeller or if you're, uh, uh, you know, uh, Chase Bank or if you're, uh, you know, I think most people would think of that as, you know, capitalist neoliberalism, perhaps capitalist domination of uh, of the state. Like the problem is that's right wing or whatever. I mean, if you're sitting there and going like Dick Cheney and Halliburton, okay, that's left wing. Man, you're pretty far from the way those terms are used in ordinary discourse, right? Like that's right wing. But I don't, but what I also think, the reason I don't think that makes sense is because 
that conception is pretty close to, for example, the Chinese communist conception, which is that state and capital are merged like totally, mm -hmm. you know, and like, I don't think that that's left wing and I don't think it's right wing. And, and I think that's probably true of uh, Cheney and Halliburton too, actually. But mm -hmm. the verbiage is right wing. The position in the culture or like in the debate is they're on the right side, right wing. But I don't think that that's helping us understand why Cheney and Xi Jinping are actually sort of doing the same kind of thing and like kind of merging into this giant capitalist state. Well, people, people, people that I, I know, you conservatives, in general, I'm going to get a call or something. Um, is that okay? That's better. Um, you know, would view the merge of capital and government as a left-wing trend. It's not left-wing as in communist. Um, I'll give you the example that that Mussolini founded, you know, established the idea of fascism. He had been a Bolshevik. He had been far out on the left when he was younger as a professor. He realized that Italy was not ready for Bolshevism. It was not, could not be moved that far to the left because it was a country of all shop owners, the Roman Catholic Church had a lot of influence, all of which he opposed. But so he developed what he called the third way. Yeah. It was kind of a halfway toward it kept capitalist entities and traditions in place, but yet it moved the country in a socialistic direction so that they could gradually move things toward the ultimate you know, left goal, whatever that is. And... Um, I don't think this is goals for left after a while. No, but. I think they were. And he was seen as a progressive when he started out. I think Roosevelt modeled his original New Deal after, after Mussolini, even though Roosevelt was not as far left as Mussolini by any means. Um, and now you talk about like the merge of capital and, and, and um, business. First of all, Dick Cheney, just as a matter of record, I remember this. When he was picked as vice presidential candidate, he was there was a big hue and cry about his massive ownership in Halliburton. Oh my God, this is a conflict of interest. It's terrible. He divested. He didn't divest. He sold it. Right. That's what I mean. I mean, he didn't put it in a trust or something. Yeah. He just flat out sold it. Made a crap load of money. Everybody's like, "Oh, look at this! You're making all this money." And then a year later, Halliburton stock tanked. And everyone said, aha, you knew something. It was an insider deal. So he was getting it, it criticized on all sides. But the point I'm making here is that he, you know, in a sense, it's a reflection of what happens now in government. And that you have this revolving door between, you know, big corporate heads and, and entering and then leaving and then entering and then leaving government. And it's a very incestuous thing. And I, I think it's a very unhealthy thing. But I mean, to single him out, I'm just saying that he doesn't seem to be as much someone who's invested in that as people who, for example, are in Goldman Sachs and they end up on the Supreme Court, like right. like, like Elena Kagan and these others, and who you know continue to be vested or, or the Clintons. I mean, my God, I mean, they talk about Goldman Sachs and and money's pouring in from Russia, you know, and and all the rest. It's right. it's, it's not something that though this doesn't track. Left and right does it though? Oh, See, it does. I, I think what it's is condemned by both the far left and by conservatives. It's certainly not conservative. It's it's you know conservatives generally I think are reflected in the philosophy in this sense of Ayn Rand, who talked about the separation of business and state, right. and who uh, even going back to her criticism, which I don't agree with necessarily, of like the antitrust. Uh, legislation, which I think is actually necessary, but she really felt that the government has no role on the national level in business. Yeah, um, mm -hmm. and to the degree that the government is in bed with business, is is it's kind of like the Mussolini model. It's kind of a third way. It's it's half left. It's half you know, they leave messages exactly. of uh, of freedom, but but exactly. it's by no means conservative. And and if you take a look at the paradigm of you know, bigger government moving to the left, smaller government to the right, then it is moving to the left. Now, I know that conventional logic and conventional discourse holds these people as on the right, and I suppose relatively they are on the right compared to people who are more openly on the left. But generally speaking, these tendencies 
uh, are on the left. Now, let me ask you a question in this vein okay. to the, the, the big corporate heads in this country. The big money in this country, the top richest people in this country, overwhelmingly are liberals. They, you know, they're not left wing, they're not communists. But if you take a look at the, the parties they support, policies they support, their political actions, it, it skews to the left. And okay. there are exceptions. And they are, you know, for example, I think the Koch brothers are an exception. Okay, um, and people like that. Yeah, but okay, I agree with you at this point, at this moment, that's true. Has been for a while. I mean, yes. if you take a look at the Forbes magazine every year publishes top richest, 100 richest Americans. The ones that we can identify as having a philosophy, they're on the left. Bill Gates, Warren Buffett. Yeah, Buffett, Gates, all of them, the Google guys. Soros. Z Zuckerberg, who's, whose company has been nice enough to let us do this show right now, and I'm grateful for that. Right? <laughs> I mean, you know, Bezos, they're all on the left. They're all liberals. And, right. and, and you have the Koch brothers are the only exception, and they're not conservative, by the way. Not the only exception, but yeah. Well, they're the only exception at the top. Because you take a look at the top ten, they're the only two names that are not identified as liberal, and it's okay. and and they're vilified for that. And they're not even conservative. I mean, they're social liberals. They they supported, for example, the the petition in New York State to make gay marriage legal. So you know they're 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 libertarians. They're small yes. government guys, but they're not social conservatives. Right. And um, my question to you is why? Why is it that you have? So many liberals. And, and then as you go down the list, you say some more conservative names. But you have to go kind of down a ways to get to them. Why is that? <laughs> well, I think, you know, it, it, it wouldn't have been that way in 1975. You know, uh, the people running U.S. Steel or, uh, you know, the biggest corporation, Santa, you know, uh, maybe weren't in that vein. I, it's an interesting cultural development. I mean, partly maybe it has to do with the sort of businesses they're in. You know what I mean? Like these uh, IT type businesses, they require a lot of sort of uh, infrastructure and global, um, uh, maybe global reach that they can achieve part that requires them to negotiate with various states continuously. I'm not mm -hmm. sure, really. Uh, but um, I think that this kind of thing illustrates my point, though. I do think it makes sense to have a political spectrum that would be libertarian on one end, small government, to maybe Marxist communist on the other end, okay? But that's not really the way we, I mean, or, or like total state power on the other end. That's not really the way we conceive the spectrum, okay? Uh, so, for example, you're, you're connecting social conservatism or uh, say belief in God, for example, to um to you know being on the right that has no necessary connection really with the libertarian uh underpinnings do you see what i mean like you could be an evangelical christian who really thought that a theocracy would be a good idea many people have been like that uh you know what i'm saying so there's it's like a sort of a these things are grouped together or you have like the national security conservatives like say mccain or Lindsey Graham or somebody like that. Mm -hmm. Okay. They're they're not small government. Right. They're big government. And the, the basic difference though is how they want to spend the money and how they want to expend the resources. Social programs versus say military, a military emphasis and things like that. That's supposed to track the left right spectrum, but that doesn't make any sense on the libertarian to say Marxist communism spectrum. So what one thing I'm saying is like and, and and you start getting really confused, I think, when you start saying Mussolini's a good example of someone who, yes, he transitions, you know, like, and yes, I don't think you can make sense of his positions as left or right. Not really. Uh, you know, unless you say small government equals right and large government equals left. But some large governments are obviously right wing, I guess, or the way we use the terms. Anyway, anyway. No, I mean, first of all, I, I point out that with Mussolini, it was more than just big nanny state government, which is what he was all about, and so was in Hitler. But it was also 
anti-religion. It was a state control over religions. It became a state institution, not what it was meant to be, which is a personal belief that's that's not tampered by by the government. Um, and also, okay. I just want to say, as far as like on the right, people supporting a theocracy, that's a tiny fringe, and that's kind of a myth. People don't in this country generally want to see a theocracy. There are some. I mean, oh. I've actually interviewed somebody who, who said this on my show, and I'm like, theocracy? I mean, hello, who's which theory? Which you know? Okay, but they want to take an oath to Jesus. I mean, I I don't think so. So people, people want to legislate out of their religious orientation in a million sure. ways, right? In you know? political orientation, that's one thing. But to have like a formal theocracy, right. no, that's not anything that Americans, other than maybe some nut fringe group, has so ever embraced. Is the government of Iran left wing or right wing? Um, I would say that they, they are too. I would say that generally speaking, radical Islam is susceptible to and finds common cause with leftism in that if you take a look, for example, at their main enablers, their main supporters around the world, it's, on, it's leftists, and that they are into, I mean, it's not the same. They're not as left because they do believe in God. The main supporters but, of Iran So Let me make, make my point. Yeah. They're not as to the left as like, you know, Stalin or Hitler or these, you know, these, these, these heroes of the, of the radical left, because they believe in God, because they believe in some level of tradition, and Islam is not a far left thing. It's it's a it's amalgam of leftism and and faith, but they are to the left in that they want to have a a nanny state that controls all aspects of the life of their citizens. They call it Sharia. They are also on the left in that they support Sharia law is a leftist thing. Oh, absolutely. Okay. And, they, and let me just finish. They yeah. also support a concept that is very similar to the communist idea of revolution and world order. They call it jihad. It's this idea that in order to create a utopian planet and a, a one world ant colony, you have to have everyone controlled by one entity. That's part of their ethos. It's also part of the communist ethos. So they have common cause. They're not, you know, as I say, as far left in that they want to outright abolish anything that makes us unequal and private property. But they are certainly to the left in, in their authoritarian nature and in their belief in the, the stewards of an elite over people to create, to control their lives and to create a nanny state. And, and this is completely the opposite of the American conception, which is that there's no nanny state. It's, okay, it's fine. And there's limited government. Yeah. So in that sense, yeah, I would say that they are on the left. The only reason why you can say they're not is because they are, quote, unquote, religious. And now, they're reactionary in a thousand ways. And, you know, uh, I mean, I guess another way to do this is what direction is time going in, progress or regress? But almost no one is going to count Iran's mullahs as leftists. I, what I'm basically saying is you're ordering these things. I do. What, I, what I'm trying to say is the way we actually use these terms is incoherent. Now, when you're trying to, as you're trying to, to identify the mullahs as, as the left, as, it's important to do that. It gets into who they are. It, it examines the nature of their movement and where they're going. Well, they're totalitarians or whatever. Like that, okay. they should be condemned. That's my but, You know, so you're going to make mil the military a military dictatorship somewhere. You know, Duterte. You're going to make a leftist. And anyone that you don't like, basically. No, that's not true. I wouldn't say that Duterte is a leftist. I would say that he's probably, you know, not as as right wing as as you know. He's not as he's not as to the right as we are. Okay. But I, what I would say is this. I mean, first of all, having a military is part of a sovereign state. It's in the Constitution. That's not a leftist idea. That's actually a conservative idea because the reason that a nation sets up a military and sets up local policing on a local level is to protect property, is to protect rights, is to protect those rights which are given by, as Jefferson said, the creator. And that's in the Constitution. I don't see that as being a right wing thing. I suppose it is in that. 
and in the case of like a Duterte, he's dealing with an extreme threat to property in his country. There's an insurrection by Islamists. And so he has he needs more military. Now, if he keeps the military going like that, even after the threat is over, then that becomes a big problem. But, you know, the mil- the use of military is in response to particular conditions in any country. I mean, well, he's we- executing drug dealers. But look, here's, can I pull back for a second? Here, I, what I think this whole discussion is actually illustrating is exactly that the left-right spectrum is totally incoherent. Because look, the way we actually use the terms, Perte mm-hmm. and Iran's mullahs are on the right, which actually it doesn't make much sense to pair them together either. What I'm saying is the way we actually use these terms is not helping us to understand. Now, I think you're re-legislating what these terms mean in a more coherent way. Like, I think the way you're using these terms makes them make sense, okay? Just like basically individual rights on a spectrum to state power. I would I would recognize that as a reasonable way to organize political positions in order to understand them. And I would gravitate toward the libertarian stop, uh, side of that spectrum, okay? But I don't think that's the way we use these terms at all when we're talking about Cheney or when we're talking about Duterte or when we're talking about Iran's mullahs or Mussolini or, you know, in other words, the way we're actually using these terms isn't helping us to understand. I mean, it's not helping us to understand, for example, that communist China right now is very similar in a lot of ways to say Egypt's economy or Iran's economy, where state and uh, and like the military establishment and the economy are merged entirely in all three cases. They're very similar. So I could call that left wing or right wing. I don't think that's helping me really understand why they're similar. So in a way, like I, I, I get your way of ordering them, ordering political positions, but I just don't think the left right spectrum as we really use it, like on the op ed page of the New York Times or something, tracks that distinction as you're putting it out very well. You know, I think that what you're what you're illustrating here actually is the both the strength and the Achilles heel of the right of conservatives, which is that in the broad sense, conservatism is not an ideology or or the right is not an ideology. It's a very vast and and very diverse group of ideas and principles. I mean, you mentioned like libertarianism. Libertarianism probably is the furthest to the right of any of the right-wing groups short of anarchy. Well, that's one way to think about it, I guess. Yeah, because... Anarchy might be on the left. Excuse me? Anarchy might be on the left, though. It might be, and I I think there's a difference. I'm going to explain that also, but in my opinion. But the the libertarian movement, I mean, if you look at Ayn Rand's work, you know, the government's to do policing, army, and contracts, and nothing else. That is really limited government. That is really far out on the right. But also on the right, you have vastly different groups. You've got religious conservatives. You've got, you know, you've got um, all sorts of things, social conservatives. And and they don't agree. And they, they're, they're very different. But they have a couple of basic principles that they agree on. And I think those would be in this country and probably in other countries that they value the they, they value the importance of national sovereignty as a reflection of individual sovereignty. And um you know, and they have in this country we embrace Judeo-Christian values. Now, maybe a conservative ethos or a right ethos in, in a country like Burma would embrace Buddhist values. That's fine. But the point is that they well, how, how do Judeo-Christian values and I mean that doesn't necessarily follow from the libertarianism or necessarily feed directly into libertarian. I, I see why you make that connection. I would argue that it does, and it depends. And yet, there are different people that interpret those values differently. But essentially, it does. Now, this is why it's the Achilles heel of conservatism, because as I say, it's not an ideology itself versus the left, which is an ideology, I would argue. I agree. And and as such, it's much more uniformal. The arguments on the left have more to do with how fast or how slow we should go. And it has more to do with personal rivalry and, and all of that stuff that's natural to people. You know, they have bitter fights between 
the Clintons and the Obamas, right, or whatever. Collins and the Trotskys. Yeah, that's right. They're, they're, and they're arguing over how fast we should move toward communism or how slow. Hitler and Stalin, that was their argument. But, but anyway, the, 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 the point, as far as the issue of anarchy goes, because I know you've described yourself as an anarchist, in a way, it's where they both sides meet, right? The further to the right you go, the less government you have, eventually you become an anarchist. Whereas on the left, the more government you have, the total government, eventually you need anarchy to create that. It's part of the <clears throat> dialectical process. And that was as understood by, by Michael Bakunin, who is the founder of modern anarchy in Russia. And that I would suggest that the different view of anarchy from the left and the right is an interesting illustration of how the left and the right are different, in that the right views anarchy as a fundamental principle of no government of, or of minimal government, whereas the left views anarchy as a device and as a means to an end, which is, I would suggest, total government. People on the left who are anarchists would suggest that it's a move toward ending all structures of man-made government because we've reached the level where we live in harmony with nature and there's no more inequality since we've given up our identities and we've given up our property and our faith and our family and all the things that make us unequal. We've become de facto equal, so we no longer need government. Paul Marx referred to this as saying that it's when governments would wither away. Right. And, and that condition is called communism. Right. Okay. <laughs> but, okay. Again, I think this is going to illustrate the inadequacy of the left-right spectrum. In the late 19th century, speaking of Bakunin, yes. there were two almost equally potent wings of like the left labor movement, the radical left labor movement in Europe and the United States. Marxist communism and communist anarchism. And the communist anarchists, people like Emma Goldman, uh, Peter Kropotkin, Bakunin, accused... Anarcho-syndicalists? Uh, that's a term that came later that... that Syndicalism, I mean, like of the Wobblies, right? Yeah, like sort of working through labor unions, specifically, as syndicalists. These kind of mass communes, the world would be divided up rather than nation-states. Yes. You have people in, involved with a certain trade who would right. become... So both, both the communist anarchists and the Marxist communists were attacking capitalism, okay? Right. Mm -hmm. But uh, the anarchists, communist anarchists, who definitely consider themselves far left-wing, right. uh, you know, attacked Marx as being a statist authoritarian and thought that all structures of uh, authority, especially the state, but also like corporate, you know, uh, capitalism, needed to disintegrate simultaneously. Now, what I would say is that when you get to the Russian Revolution in the early 20th century, by that time, and right maybe because of that, the left wing becomes totally dominated by these authoritarian uh, statists. And so it's kind of a tragedy, if you ask me, that the left wing lost its, what we might call its libertarian possibility. Like it's an attack on capitalism. Uh, it's maybe in favor of communal ownership, at least of some sorts of things, uh, but it's anti-statist and immediately anti-authoritarian uh, in the practical movement of that time. And so, and there's still a lot of people who consider themselves to be on the left who are anti-statists, you know, uh, and they'll call themselves anarchists uh, often. Right. But, yeah, but I don't think... Uh, an anti-statist position necessarily fits very well into either uh, side, although I see why you want to pull it right, I guess. No, I mean, I would say that what you're illustrating is my point that on the left you have, it's a matter of, of how fast you want to go. The anarchists were not patient with the Marxist idea of a dialectic, where which he drew from Hegel, where you would you would go in stages. You would, you know, first you have capitalism, then you have socialism, then you have thisism, Eventually, you have communism, and that that meant, in a sense, working with the existing order and then gradually subverting it and using it to your own purposes, based upon the principle of false consciousness. That this was, you know, whereas Bakunin and the anarchists, 
they wanted the same goal. They just wanted to get there quicker. They thought the way to go was just to get it over with and smash, yeah. smash the uh, the state right away. But yes. they had the same goal, the ultimate abolition of sovereignty, the abolition of faith, the collectivization of the planet. Well, the, the, the abolition of... You know, the one world beehive. Well, the abolition of, of sovereignty in the sense of probably the abolition of national borders and so on, yes. yes. Uh, right. it, not, the, not the abolition of God necessarily. Many yes, the abolition of God. Yep, I would say that's true. Uh, many anti-statists, anti even on the left, I, I'll give you Leo Tol Tolstoy, for instance, uh, is, you know, we're also religious. And most of them, and this is true of Emma Goldman, for instance, and people like this, they were themselves atheists, but they were in favor of the absolutely free exercise of religion. You know, they... As, look, it's like the Nazis were in favor of the, you know, religion in a small sense, too. But they viewed it as a tool of the state to yeah. abolish it. And they, despised, they despised Christianity because they thought it was a Judaizing influence in Europe. But the point is that if it's, by, it's, any, by any standards, if you're saying it's the same goal, which is the abolition. You know, when you talk about abol no. abolishing national borders and national states, that's a reflection of abolishing property because the state no. is, there, is, is an entity created by the people in that region to no. protect the rights of people no. who own property. And, no. and are you suggesting that the anarchists don't want to abolish property? Uh, it depends on the, which anarchists we're talking about. Some anarchists. It's the principle of anarchy. No, 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 no. No. To abolish uh, private ownership of the means of production, private ownership of property. No. The no, dictionary definition of socialism, public ownership of the means of production. That's communism. It's not anarchy. It's socialism. Some, and, it is, and it's also anarchy. Some anarchists have been very much in favor of private property, and some have rejected it entirely. All right. What I would suggest, again, is if they are in favor of it, either they're not fully conscious or winning about what anarchy is, or... They're in favor of it as a temporary measure because it's needed. You know, in, in that sense, they might be a drop more conservative than some of their fellows. And, and they were critical of Marx because he was not as far to the left as they were and that he wanted to move in steps. If you take a look at the Communist Manifesto, the, the seventh and eighth plank, Marx talks about how, you know, people in a given country need to, you know, in a sense, disguise themselves and adopt to the ways of that country so they can subvert over time and gradually create the new order. And, you know, that was not, that was not, uh, you know, the, the anarchists didn't have the patience for that. They right. wanted to do it, but they had but the they, same goal. They all were yeah. working for the same cause. But the, 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 they were on the same the, side. The, They're on the same team. Someone like Emma Goldman is yeah. an status anti-authoritarian and she wants to let a thousand flowers breed. Every community can live as it pleases. She's an advocate of individual rights. Okay, She connects her views to people like Thoreau and Emerson. Uh, but she's also an opponent of private property and in particular monopoly capital. All right. Uh, she's not about enforcing it. And, and to connect that with a fascist like Mussolini or something who she lived through and was absolutely opposed to. OK, like in the Spanish. If I could just make a note here, because this might appall people on on the far left. And I, I'm not saying you're, you're among that, Kristen, but she actually regretted uh, um, a lot of her anti-Americanism and her uh, her radicalism after she had been expelled from the country by by Attorney General Palmer in the in the Palmer raids of, of 1914 after anarchists blew up houses across the country of major officials on a single day, June 6, 1919. Now, Palmer responded by putting them all on a boat and sending them out of the country, including her. And she looked back and regretted a lot of what she did. And she wrote a book about it. It's often not talked about by people who are you know, who write about Emma Goldman. But she really took a major, you know, turn later well, in life. She was absolutely opposed to the Bolsheviks. And she yeah, was, there. was after she'd been kicked out of the country. Yes. I mean before she, that she was she supported the yes. guy that assassinated William McKinley. Correct. Correct. All right. 
and and she supported the Bolsheviks until she got to Russia. And that's my win. point. Once she saw the reality of it, yes. Once she was out of the country and she actually took a look. This is why I tell left wingers who are so into like, you know, radical socialism. Why don't you move to Venezuela for a few weeks? You know, see what this, see what socialism does. You can't even get a friggin' roll of toilet paper, anyway. But but the point is that she's a little different after the fact when she actually realized some of the reality of what she was advocating. Well, and how it actually what it did to people and what how inhumane it was. Well, she realized how incompatible what the Bolsheviks were doing with the values that she had always professed. Now, she kind of aligned herself with the radical leftists of the world before the Russian Revolution. There was this kind of like Marxist anarchist rivalry, but sometimes uh, collaboration as well. And but then, you know, by the time see one problem was by the time she got to Russia, Lenin was and Trotsky were executing anarchists. Okay, so that was one thing that gave her pause. Uh, but yeah, she and she just like anarchists throughout that period. She thought of these people as just totalitarians and that they should be resisted compatibly with the values that these anarchists prof themselves professed. All right, now, Chris, we're reaching toward the end of the program, so I want to talk a little bit about your philosophy. Okay. You know, I see that you're described on your Wikipedia page as an anarchist. So what's what's the deal with that? <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I guess I would associate uh, my politics with, like I say, sort of early 19th century uh, American, uh, some early 19th century American radical traditions. Thoreau is a pretty good representation of my politics, actually, like civil disobedience. Uh, so I think we probably share a lot of values, man, actually. Uh, I'm very much into uh, individual freedom and so on. And I've been exploring more and more the connection of those kind of views to the radical Protestantism of that era. Um, you know, I've, I've been going to Quaker meetings mm -hmm. and, uh, and pacifism and so on. Uh, but I also think that this, in other words, if you look at people who, I guess a lot of leftists might regard as progressive in the early 19th century, uh, like William Lloyd Garrison or, you know, the great abolitionists, for example, or the feminists like uh, Lucretia Mott or uh, uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Mm -hmm. These were individualists. Frederick Douglass as well, even. These were individualists in very much the American vein or even in a more radical vein than, say, the founders, you know. Uh, Emerson and Thoreau's individualism. And yet they were opponents of slavery, proponents of equality for women, uh, critics of capitalism, like rapacious capitalism as that emerged in kind of the robber baron era. Mm -hmm. uh, and I guess I, that's how I think about my politics. And I can't fit that easily into the left-right spectrum, which is, I guess, how I came to critique that as a way of understanding. I, mean, I put all those people on the right, but anyway. <laughs> right, exactly. But yeah, because they all stood, look. The American trend from the founding of the republic right up till today has been enfranchising the individual. Uh, you know, getting rid of slavery, you know, empowering women, uh, getting rid, lowering the voting age. You know, gay rights. All these things. These are all moves toward you know greater individual rights. It's a trend that we could look at in Western civilization going all the way back to, to the days of Moses. And, you know, it, it's, a, it's a move toward the, the conservative ideal, which is that, that, you know, we derive rights from the creator, not the state, that we have sovereign rights in our limited lifetime over our own lives and over our own destiny, that we're not collectivist. We're not, we don't need to you know, part of, you know, one of the big calling cards of the left is that somehow they're going to do good for somebody else, right? But the fact is that that is a natural element of the human being. It's not that everyone's going to do it, but it's kind of baked into who we are. We want to, yeah, we want to do good for our fellows. We want to do good for our families, our communities, even our nation and for the world. We want to make a difference, a positive difference. That's natural. You don't need the government to do that. You don't and need I think we to enforce it. Right. In a sense, to, to the degree that Americans 
historically and today are the most generous people in the world is the degree to which we're the freest and we're the least oriented towards state, you know, control. Um, I wish that was true because I feel like it, it, we've really come a long ways toward, you know, a, a, a huge state that does so many things in so many ways. away from our principles, but I think it is true. And we've Americans have been willing to sacrifice a great deal as individuals to help other people, both in this country and in the world, more so than any society ever. Now, we've moved away from some of our ideals in terms of becoming a bigger state orientation. But I still believe that the average American has not. And I think the average American is waking up. One, one, piece, one piece of illustration that I would point to to make that point is a movement that I think has elected Donald Trump. Now, you know, we could talk about who Trump is as a person. That's another subject. Right. But he represents a movement. I think that it represents a move away from this kind of double talking, big state kind of corporate okay. thing. Okay, but the individual, you know, swashbuckling American individual who's lifting themselves up and who wants individual freedoms. Okay, but but look, now right now Trump is selling large tax cuts with a huge infrastructure program, for example. Okay. So right. I, I mean I think Americans particulars. I'm not talking about Trump's actual I, policies, which which I, tend to be similar to every other president. Well, I think Americans the movement that he represents, why he was elected. It's something right. I, what I'm saying though whether Trump continues or not, we have to understand the, the, the power and the nature of that movement in, in order to genuinely be progressive and to right. advance. Okay. But it wasn't a libertarian movement. And just, oh, I think it was just like you know, it was libertarian. It was religious. It was conservative. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, now that's not to say that Trump embodies those principles personally, or that he is, as a matter of public policy, he's doing those things. But to a very large and astonishing degree, he is. I mean, more so than you know, it shows how elections can make a difference. I mean, now he, again, he certainly is, you know, a statist. He's not going to cut from that completely. But right. I mean, the degree to which he has, you know, as Steve Bannon said, he's he's moving the country gradually away from the administrative state. He's returning rights back to the sovereign people through their representatives. I mean, if you read Trump's inaugural address, it's one of the most extraordinary documents I've seen come down the pike in a long time. Every school kid should read it. He lays out his philosophy Now, whether he sticks to that is another story. Right. But anyways, Crispin, we're reaching toward the end. It's a fascinating conversation. Indeed. I want you to let people know, my listeners, my viewers, how they can find out more about you, where they can get your books, what you're up to. Yeah, well, here's my latest book. I haven't had it. Uh, Entanglements, the System of Philosophy. You can find me on Twitter if you can spell my name, Crispin Sartwell, at uh, Twitter, uh, <laughs> at Crispin Sartwell. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. You can. Uh, you, you're, you're on Amazon. Yes, you can get. You can find me on Amazon here and there. I bet you can get in touch with me if you really want to. Yeah, very good. All right, Chris. But listen, it's been a great talk. Enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Very challenging. Thanks, Chuck. All right. Have a good day. Take care. You too. All right.